Welcome, everyone, to this week's podcast for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, uh, the last week in Texas. With us today is Michael Smith from Sheaf and Stone. And you, everybody knows, of course, Michael is uh, the author of the leading blog in the nation on the happenings in Texas. So, uh, Michael, tell us what's going on this week. Well, Wayne, uh, what's interesting this past week is we often talk about the Eastern District and the Western District of Texas, but this past week, the, uh, the most interesting opinions came out of the Southern District and the Northern District, uh, basically Houston and then Dallas and parts North and, and West. And they didn't have trials, but they had a number of rulings granting injunctive relief, uh, dismissing patent infringement cases, making claim construction rulings, a lot of things that uh, I think are interest, uh, interesting to our listeners because they talk about the sort of evidentiary issues and evidentiary challenges that we're confronted with in IP and tech cases. Well, let's just start with the Northern District. Well, the, the first case I wanted to mention in the Northern District is an opinion by Judge uh, Boyle. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting case. There's a restaurant in Dallas that has a certain name, and a new restaurant came out and had a similar name. And the first restaurant thought that they had a reputation for bad health standards, bad food, rude service. So they asked for an injunction, keeping them from using that term. And the judge goes through the elements and determines, yes, you've, you've met the standard for injunctive relief. And that's kind of unusual because it's hard to get injunctive relief at the front of a case. I had uh, Judge Ward one time referred to it on a call is uh, he was telling the parties, well, you know, the sun might come up in the West this morning. But uh, that was kind of his analogy to how likely it was you could get injunctive relief in a patent case. So it's useful to see somebody actually put the right evidence on uh, in this trademark case. Well, I tell you, when I, when I read this case, a couple of things stuck out. First of all, it was a battle between Houston and Dallas. You know, these two restaurants had, had their locations uh, for many years and in Dallas and Houston. And when one was coming into to the Dallas market, that's what caused the, the fight. So it's an interesting trademark reminder about the geographic scope. But what really struck me about this case uh, was that the plaintiff put on maybe the best organized evidence I've seen in an injunction case. You know, if you're going to show confusion and uh, irreparable harm, this plaintiff went through and showed great social media records, um, Yahoo, Yelp, Google records, phone records, and all backed by affidavits. Um, so when you read, when you really read the judicial opinion, it's seen that the court was impressed not only by the weight of the evidence, but by the quality and the presentation style. So to me, it shows you what you got to do to win an injunction case. You just have oh, to do evidence right. Absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's just a, a, a absolute terrific set of, of uh, how to go through the the elements. It's something I'd read uh, if I need to try and prove uh, the, the elements for this. It's, it's just a great job. There was another interesting case uh, for trademark now moved to copyright, but there was a photo copyright case in the Northern District that uh, kind of gives us some nice standards going forward. Well, it, it, it does. There was a motion to dismiss in a photo copyright case where uh, Magistrate Judge Horan recommended Judge uh, Scholler grant the motion. But, and I'm kind of interested in photo copyright cases. I've done a couple of seminars on them lately, 
uh, and represented some parties in some photo copyright cases. Uh, and it was interesting seeing the judge apply the standards here and talked about, okay, and again, let me back up. The photograph at issue is just a pair of hands holding pills. And the argument was made that it lacked the originality required for copyright protection. Well, that's not an issue that you see raised very often. So this is the case I'd go to to see, you know, maybe I can make an argument for a defendant that there's insufficient originality here. And the judge agreed, but the bad news is, reading between the lines, you could tell the judge agreed because he said, well, all the, all the facts that you need here that'll create fact issues that'll preclude dismissal, they're all in an affidavit. They're not in the complaint. So recommended to the judge, grant the motion to dismiss with, with uh, leave to replead, and then uh, I think when they put those facts into the complaint, they'll get past it. It also talks about the fair use defense and noted at this stage, again, here's the evidence on fair use and says at this point, they weigh in the plaintiff's favor. So deny it on that. So again, it's, it's useful evidentiary uh, uh, analysis for us. Well, it's a good reminder for rule 12 style motions that if you're pointing to things that don't have a paragraph number in your complaint, uh, the court shouldn't consider them, even though some courts maybe, maybe will hear some of that evidence without requiring repleting. This magistrate does it kind of by the by the textbook, and it's the right way to teach new attorneys to do the, the Rule Twelve type motions. No, I I agree, and and also the the, the thing that the practice point that I'd take away from this is, you know, looking at the originality. Um, okay, yeah, it's not in the complaint they've got it in an affidavit, or they could put it in an affidavit. Is it really worth spending the client's money on the motion to dismiss here? Because it looks like they're going to be able to get past it. So that's something that I look at a lot on some of the smaller cases is, yeah, I might be able to win a motion to dismiss, but it's probably going to get a uh, permission to replay. Do I really want to spend the money on that? So uh, a lot of times, given how expensive litigation is, uh, some of these fights up front, I think we're better off not fighting. Well, there was another preliminary injunction that came out of the, the Southern District. What's... Oh, yeah. Th th that was the odd thing about this past week. We get preliminary injunctions and trademark cases out of both courts, both finding that the uh, injunction should issue and both um, giving a great uh, example of how you put the evidence on on this. Uh, in this case, uh, the court began by saying this is a trademark case concerning the use of the color blue. So the whole case was about a competitor. These are those uh, uh, lifts that you see on construction sites, scissor lifts. And the question was a competitor changed from painting, painting its mobile elevating work platforms red to painting them blue. And you think, okay, well, change from red to blue, it's not a big deal. Well, Judge Hittner found that it was because the evidence that was put on was that the plaintiff uh, had been using this color for 40 years. Nobody else used this color. It's in the construction equipment industry where we see things in yellow, orange, and red all the time, but not blue. Everybody identified blue with this particular company. So he said, nope, this isn't enough, uh, 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 or, or this is enough. You've shown enough in terms of the factors to be able to get an injunction in joining this. And then, uh, and then it goes into also into the requirement for how much does the bond need to be? That's something that the Dallas court didn't address in that order 
and left for a later order. But here, Judge Hittner goes through and says, okay, the bond in this case needs to be a million. Well, when you when you look at the opinion, this is another one with great evidence. And it's the one of the few construction equipment manufacturers you'll find that had a YouTube campaign. So if you go into YouTube, you can uh, find their their advertising campaign. It's called Out of the Blue. And I think the, the court obviously you know references that and obviously thought hey this is pretty interesting if they're doing video campaigns in the equipment industry all around the color blue and i took a few minutes to watch that and everything there was blue and branded uh, with with their name so good good presentation of that evidence uh, in getting it into the court and and that this is i think probably a rare situation that you essentially can trademark green in an area. Uh, I mean, you're, you're a farm boy. Is there a farm equivalent to this? Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that John Deere was green. Uh, Case International was red. I mean, it's, it's been that way for as long as I can remember. Um, you see Caterpillar and, and construction yellow. So obviously here there was maybe some suspicious activity where somebody was painting from red to blue to, to maybe you know, rely on somebody else's brand. Yeah, a very interesting opinion. Uh, we had another uh, interesting case out of the Southern District where uh, the court denied summary judgment in a Lanham Act case, and that was a false designation of origin case where the court said uh, you had an interesting set of facts where the, the uh, plaintiff was trying to, to argue that this was a case of unfair competition because the defendant was claiming that products came from a certain place when they really came from another place, which in that case uh, mattered for competitive purposes. And the court said, okay, at this point, the plaintiffs alleged sufficient facts to state a plausible claim. So this is an example of, I always like cases where it's like uh, when, you're, when you're firing shots and you're trying to hit a ship and sometimes you're long and sometimes you're short, well, this one was short, so it gives us an example of where the court said, you're not, you're not there yet. You haven't got sufficient facts. It was unusual this week that we had all these cases where you did have sufficient facts. Well, then I saw a venue case out of the Southern District. Um, is this going to add to our, our Texas lore on, on venue? I, I think it will. This is a case where, where uh, uh, Judge Leith Rosenthal was applying the first to file rule. There was a case filed in Waco. There was a case filed in her court. She's the second filed court. And she goes through the rule and says, okay, here's what I do as the second filed court. And of course, we're always trying to persuade the judge, well, you're really not the second filed. You're really the first filed. And she went through those arguments. But it's a good uh, analysis of the first to file rule from a second filed court's perspective uh, that I would look at when trying to decide whether I can get the, the second filed court to kind of elbow their way to the head of the line. And she decided she would not, uh, she would let the first filed court in Waco rule on the motion to transfer, and then she'll see what Judge Albright does on that. Interestingly, she didn't just stay it, she administratively closed the case. So if I've got a case in her court, I'll know just kind of have a mental note that that is her preference to administratively close, and then she can reopen it later uh, if the need arises. Well, the, the Southern District also had a really interesting claim construction opinion that uh, went through the indefiniteness standards and found one term indefinite. 
what what do we learn from that case? Well, we had a couple of cases from Judge Andy Hainan in Houston, who was in Brownsville for a long time. And uh, uh, I like Judge Hainan because he used to use my papers on, on procedure. Uh, and I forgive him for telling the audience that they're good, also good for insomnia. Uh, but in the uh, claim construction case, he, he uh, uh, talked about the term various forms as being indefinite. So it's, it's, it's useful for us to know there is expertise on how to handle these patent cases in, in Houston, in the Southern District, but it's a, it's a useful experience in going through the claim construction process with judges that don't do it all the time and kind of seeing how they approach it and whether it might be different than what, we, what we're used to seeing in the cases that have more uh, patent cases, the courts right. that have more patent cases. What struck me about this case, Michael, is that the, the patent owner used an expert to put in some some evidence about what a very the term various forms mean, and that expert flipped, went from a very specific definition to the plain and ordinary meaning by the time briefing came up, and the court did not seem amused by that and actually cited that as a as strong evidence that the term had various meanings and was indefinite. I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, when we're, we're wanting to know what are judges interested in, what what sticks out to a judge. And here, clearly, if you have an expert that's waffling, uh, if you have an expert that's changing positions, that has some value, apparently, in the court's mind as to whether the position that you're putting forward is 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 as uh, valid as you're claiming it is. We, we use the example of you don't really trust a clock that strikes 13. Well, you don't really trust an expert that changes their opinion, and it's useful to know uh, to, uh, that that matters to a court in the uh, claim construction context. So the court may not rely on your expert if the expert tells the same story all the time, but if the expert tells two different stories, you're pretty pretty sure that the court's going to spot that and use it against you. Right, right. Um, we had another opinion from Judge Hainan this week uh, on summary judgment in patent cases, and this is an interesting one because it's, it's issues that we see all the times in patent cases, claim construction, summary judgment based on claim construction, fact issues, and whether they uh, prevent summary judgment. And the motions got a little out of order here, so the court's having to deal with things on reconsiderations and on multiple summary judgments. But I, I just enjoyed that this opinion because the court's going through, okay, here's the motion, here's the standard, here's the ruling. Now, here's a reconsideration, here's the standard, here's the ruling, here's the summary judgment, here's the new summary judgment, here's the summary judgment as to this issue. He's just taking them down uh, as they come up. And it was a useful um, example of seeing a court pull up the legal standards, pull up the facts, make rulings, and go forward. Uh, I, I just really enjoyed this uh, uh, this opinion because it went through a lot of issues that I have to deal with every day in my practice and gave me some insight into uh, the process. This is an order I might give to a younger lawyer that hasn't seen this many uh, of these and said, this is kind of a textbook example of what the thought process is on the other side of the bench. So follow this and, and that'll give you an idea what the judge is looking for. Well, now we go to the Eastern District of Texas. Uh, I'm sure something something interesting happened there. Well, we had a couple of interesting cases this week, not so much on the substance, but just in terms of guidance. Um, 
some listeners will know that the Sherman Division of the Eastern District of Texas is kind of unusual in that it has two courthouses, one in Sherman and one in Plano. And we, a lot of us know Judge Mazant in Sherman, and he tries a lot of patent cases. Well, this is kind of a reminder that the judge at the other end of the division, Judge Sean Jordan, also has patent cases, and he just issued a 93-page claim construction opinion in a case this week. So because we don't see a lot of patent cases in his division, that's a very useful opinion because it gives you uh, an example of what does he consider the standards to be, how does he approach things, uh, who does he like to use as technical advisor? It gives a lot of insight into Judge Jordan's practices. And because he's still relatively new, that's very useful to a lot of us. 93 pages of, of claim construction. I'd be curious to see how that goes through his career if those get shorter and shorter. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny because the other case from the district that I, that I wanted to mention was from the other end, uh, Judge Gilstrap and Marshall. And in that case, in Judge Gilstrap's court, claim construction is plaintiff files opening, defendant files a response, plaintiff files a reply. Several times people will ask, well, can I file a surreply? Uh, should that be part of the local rule? Should it be allowed in a particular case? Well, in this case, the, um, uh, the defendant wanted to file a surreply. And the court denied that motion in a short order and said the courts of the opinion that additional briefing is unnecessary and pointed out that the parties have submitted nearly 1,500 pages of briefing and exhibits, and the parties will have the opportunity to explain their positions at the upcoming uh, claim construction hearing. Now, different courts have different structures for claim construction, but I often go the other way on this on the defense side. Rather than getting that, that last brief in and then give the other side the chance to blindside me at the hearing with their response, I'd kind of prefer to present my surreply points at the claim construction hearing. I, 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 I know you're not giving the court a brief ahead of time, but you're hitting them with things when tactically you might face a, a less informed response on the other side. Wayne, has that been your experience or how do you prefer to do this? I mean, I, I prefer to have the, the last word in the hearing, especially for courts that'll allow you to put slides together and then hand those slides up to the bench and you don't have to exchange those slides well in advance. You know, if you just give a copy of the other side, give one to the bench and go from there. Uh, if you get those meaningful hearings, that's, that's worth a lot. I saw a great example of that uh, about three weeks ago with Judge Gilstrap. Um, the judge was running short on time. We were getting close to noon and he had a plane to catch. So he had already told, said, okay, the plaintiff's gonna have the last word on this. And the plaintiff got up and said something. And I could see the defendant, this is one where I was just spectating. I could see Laura on the defense side. I thought he was gonna get all excited about that and wanna say something, but he just sat back and smiled. And when I talked to him after the hearing, I found out why. The plaintiff got up and said something. And what he didn't realize, because he hadn't looked at the slides, was that what he said was squarely contradicted by a full-page slide that was part of the slides that the defendant had handed up. He hadn't used it at the hearing, but when the court went through that, uh, it was something where they were going to recognize it impeached the point. So the lawyer knew, I don't have to fight to get up to talk again because the court's got my slides and I know what's on them and the other side doesn't. So there's a tactical benefit to 
to when you raise some of this stuff. It's not always necessary to have the last brief. Well, it's interesting that Albright has, has flipped the order and allows the, or orders the defendant to go first in briefing. And that, that reflects a few courts, Illinois, um, Colorado have, have asked defendants to go first. And I assume that's because plaintiffs tend to lead with plain and ordinary meaning and the opening brief is meaningless. That's, that's absolutely correct. Judge Albright brought that up at our last meeting of his patent advisory committee. And that's exactly what he said is that the plaintiff always says plain and ordinary. So then the defendant is actually the opening brief. And then the plaintiff has a limited reply brief to respond to what the defendant said. So he's just said, we're, we're just going to flip that so that we get more fulsome briefing from both sides on the issues. And I, I think that's a great, back when the briefing started with plaintiffs, plaintiffs weren't going plain and ordinary meaning on everything. Now that plaintiffs tend to do that more often, especially in Judge Albright's court, that is a, a better way of getting the, uh, the briefing out. Because then, as a defendant, I, I, I get to fully engage on, on, on the issues at the reply stage. Well, Michael, last week we talked about a, a new standing order that was about to come out from Judge Albright. Did we get that? We did. We got the order. Uh, it, it has to do with his practice on uh, the interplay between uh, motions to transfer venue and Markman hearings. If we go back to March, he issued an order back then that he won't conduct a Markman hearing until he has resolved a pending motion to transfer. This revised version of that standing order kind of puts some procedural meat on the bones of that. It, it, it sets out, if you've got a pending venue, venue motion, you need to give the court a status report not later than four weeks prior to the date of the Markman hearing. Then if the court hasn't ruled on the motion by one week before, you need to email the law clerk and technical advisor uh, to remind them. I mean, currently, the, the tool people seem to be using is, is mandamus petitions to remind the court that there's a... Uh, uh, venue motion pending. Now, and he restates, I'm either going to resolve the motion or I'm going to postpone the hearing. But he also throws in one other thing, well, two more things that's interesting. He said, fact discovery starts the day after the originally scheduled Markman hearing date. So if he cancels or stays the Markman hearing date, you can start fact discovery the day after it was originally scheduled. Uh, and then also, it limits your motions to transfer. You can't file them within eight weeks of the Markman hearing without leave of court and showing of good cause. That's actually gives you more time to file it than was previously the case. So, uh, but it provides a little more structure there. So the, these rules are all in response to uh, the several mandamus petitions that went up. Um, it seems that Judge Albright's really trying to not only live with what the federal circuit has said, but try to make procedures pretty efficient for uh, the, the litigants in his court. Well, it, it is. I think it's, it's showing that he's being responsive to what the federal circuit uh, is saying by coming up with procedures that make clear uh, that he's not going to do certain things that they were concerned about. But it also gives parties some certainty because previously, in every case, you never know if the Markman's going to be stayed or not. And the, the problem that runs into is, how do you let the court know that we really need a ruling on the venue motion? Some defendants don't care. Some defendants are like, he can rule whenever he rules, that's fine. We'll get a Markman and then carry that with us. But in courts that don't have this ruling, we face the challenge all the time of, how do you let the court know if, if 
that the client believes we need to go as far as a mandamus petition uh, in order to address the issue of venue or staying uh, the Markman hearing. And uh, we have a way that we do that in other courts, a, a procedure that we go through. So what are the, what's the procedure and does it vary from judge to judge? It, it doesn't, it varies from judge to judge now because we don't have to go through the procedure with Judge Albright because we know he's going to, he's either going to rule or he's going to stay the hearing, but we don't have to worry about the hearing going forward. What we do in other courts is kind of a, a two-step procedure. When I want to let the court know that we really do want a ruling on the venue motion and we're getting pressure to uh, file a mandamus petition, the first thing you do is you file a motion to stay and explain to the court that we think this is one that Markman shouldn't go forward until the court resolves the venue issue. If that doesn't uh, uh, shake loose a response, then we uh, traditionally file a request for a hearing on the motion to stay and the motion to transfer. Just another indication to the court that we're receiving some pressure on this because nobody wants to file a mandamus. The court doesn't want to have a, a mandamus filed. It's, it's, it's not an efficient uh, use of anyone's resources, but this is the way that we try to let the court know we're getting backed into a corner by the schedule and by our, our client's needs in the case. So we really, really need a, a ruling. And if that means putting the hearing off, that's what we'd really like the court to consider doing. So that's what we do is we ask for a stay and then we ask for a hearing and we hope that that gets across to the court that we don't wanna to go to the next step, but we wanted you to know that's kind of the direction we're having to go. Well, that, that leads us perfectly into what seemed like a big week for, for stay rulings uh, across Texas which you know, I think part of the myth you, you often hear is that stays are never granted in, in Texas, don't even bother. Uh, last week may, may prove differently for us. Oh, oh yeah, the, the, the thing that goes on a little under the radar is that cases are stayed uh, all the time, especially I see this coming out of Judge, Judge Albright's court uh, for different reasons. And sometimes they're agreed and sometimes they're not. Uh, one opinion this past week, the plaintiff was the California Institute of Technology, and Judge Albright stayed three cases that they had brought uh, pending resolution of a case that they were the plaintiff in that's going to be argued at the federal circuit next week and said, let me know when we get a ruling on that, and then we'll, we'll see where we go forward from that. That one we know was opposed. Some of the other ones that we see uh, are motions to stay pending investigations by the ITC, uh, and some of those are agreed. Some of those we're not sure if they're agreed or not, because a lot of times those things are brought up by letter request or by a call with the court. We may not know what's going on, but it's something I tell people is look, look at, um, don't just assume there's no way of getting a stay. Talk to the other side about it. Look into Judge Albright's rulings and see if you can find a context where you can get your hands on a ruling in a uh, uh, in an opposed case uh, because it may be a little easier to get a stay and the other side may be willing to wait for a stay rather than to go uh, forward. Well, Michael, I'd love to, to close out this week's episode with the uh, Federal Circuit's in-ray dish case in what Judge Rania referred to as mandamus light. Um, and <laughs> I don't think he meant that in a in a good way. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't think he did either. 
that was an unusual case. It was the uh, in raid dish. And in that situation, the panel said, or two members of the panel said, that Judge Albright had clearly erred in certain ways. And their basis for that was, we have a rule that you have to consider this and can't consider this. And we've had that since last year or since earlier this year, and you didn't follow it here and you didn't follow it here. But instead of granting the mandamus, uh, they said that uh, we're gonna deny the mandamus because we're confident that the district court will reconsider its determination in light of the appropriate legal standard and precedent on its own. So uh, that's, that's kind of unusual. And that's what Judge Reyna said in the dissent. He said, that's more like an interlocutory appeal. This is mandamus. Either you met the standard or you didn't meet the standard. And while I understand that sometimes we remand when we create a new rule or we remand when we just created the rule and there really hasn't been uh, a chance for the court to take it into consideration. Frequently, I'll see a case go up where the judge applies the existing law and while the mandamus is pending, the federal circuit changes the law. So by the time you get there, he hasn't abused his discretion because the law was different at the time but they'll send it back for him to reconsider in light of that. Well, here, all the law they're referring to existed well before he ruled. So Judge Reyna's point is, well, why are, we, why are we not granting the mandamus? Or if we haven't met the standard, why are we not just denying it, saying, yes, it was erroneous, but it wasn't sufficiently erroneous? So I don't really know what to make of this, but I have one, one, uh, one uh, bit of speculation. Well, I, I got to ask now what that is. <laughs> well, the, the thing about appellate panels is you got to round up two votes on a three judge panel. And my speculation is that there were not two votes to grant mandamus, but there also weren't two votes to say everything was hunky dory. So what they basically decided to do was kick it back, do it over, and then we'll look at it then. So, so I think it's an example of one of those two judges that voted to deny the mandamus just wasn't gonna vote to grant it on this record. And they thought, well, if Judge Albright gets a chance to look at it again, he's either going to correct the, correct the errors and then we can look at it then if he denies the motion and maybe it'll, maybe it'll satisfy mandamus then. So that's my speculation of what's going on. Well, and, and that makes makes sense. Uh, the, the interesting piece of it is what's what's this telling litigants? And I, I talked to a few people and they all kind of say the same thing, that this seems to be an invitation from the federal circuit, or at least maybe a panel on the federal circuit that says, bring me all your weaker mandamus cases, and maybe we've got a lower standard for them going forward. And it'll be interesting to see how people people react to this and if the federal circuit then has to go back to the strict standard. It's kind of a bank shot reconsideration. Rather than filing a reconsideration with Judge Albright, you go to the federal circuit and get them to say, yeah, you probably should have granted this and here are the things you did wrong. Take another look at it. And that beefs up your, your reconsideration uh, when you get back in front of Judge Albright. It's not the most efficient way of running a railroad uh, from a judicial economy perspective, but I don't know. I, we're always trying to read tea leaves and figure out what does the federal circuit want. And at bottom, I'm not sure that this for me gets over the, 
Um, I think it's so panel specific and judge specific that I don't know that this isn't, um, I don't know that this is something that's going to become common. I, I think it's probably more likely that this is just another off ramp for a panel where they're not quite ready to pull the trigger, but they can't sign off on it without at least giving Judge Albright a chance to, uh, in from their perspective, clean up the opinion and and address the the cases that they that they think he should have addressed. Well, the one thing I can guarantee you is that within the next month, someone will try to use this type of case and see if the federal circuit has an appetite for more, more mandamus. Yeah, yeah the mandamus light uh, jokes are just starting, I have a feeling. So, well, <laughs> I'm not sure the next federal circuit panel will, will find it as funny, uh, but we'll see. Well, Michael, thank you again, and I look forward to talking with you next week.